Welcome to the Eden Podcast, where we think again about the Bible on women and men, and we start with a correct understanding of what happened in the Garden of Eden back in the beginning. The work of the True 316 Foundation is based on the research of Dr. Joy Fleming, who wrote the book Man and Woman in Biblical Unity, Theology from Genesis 2 to 3. Listeners like you are joining us as members of the True 316 Foundation and support the work to true the verse of Genesis 316 and the seven key passages on women and men. It turns out, when Genesis 316 becomes clear, all the other passages become clear too. You can learn more at our website, true316.com. That's tru316.com. And at the end of this episode, we'll tell you about a special gift we have for new members. And now, Enjoy today's episode of the Eden Podcast. For season 11 on the Eden Podcast, we're going back in time and playing audio that we've never played for you before. I was doing a private Zoom series of sessions with a number of students, and I used PowerPoint slides that I referred to as we went along. You can see these presentations in full on our YouTube channel, I'd love to have you subscribe. It's simply True 316. That's TRU 316. And now, let's get started. Episode A Prime Part 2 contains the three speeches to the serpent, the woman, and the man. The center speech 316 contains the linchpin of 314 to 19. The two words of word group number two in 316 function similarly to the two words noted in in 2.8 in the center of episode A, which pointed to a word in the preceding verse and pointed to a word in the succeeding verse. In 2.8, we've got one pointing up to 2.9, and in 2.8, we have one pointing back to 2.7. This was a discovery of Isaac Kikawada when he looked at Genesis chapter 11 and saw a linchpin there. He recommended, oh, yeah, there's also one in 2.8. And from that discovery, Dr. Joy Fleming said, well, wait, we have these mirror sections in A and A prime. Is there a linchpin in A prime? And she found it right here in, in 3.16. The curse on the ground because of the man will modify the cultivation of the ground such that she, like the man, will experience toil in order to eat from it. God's curse of the ground will negatively impact her life, but God will multiply her offspring. That's the other word. This is a promise of blessing, and her seed will also fight against her enemy whom God has cursed. We come to word group number three, and it doesn't speak of curses, nor does it speak of impingement of any curses on her as word group two did. It's not a blessing per se either. It does, however, pick up the themes of word group one, the words associated with blessing, and the end of two, conception, which completed that thought, and it speaks about bearing children. It bears reminding that God nowhere curses the bodies of the man or the woman. The only curses in the story are in verse 14 and verse 17, where the serpent and the ground are cursed. And neither of those curses is because of the woman. However, the curse levied on the ground will impact the man and the woman. Also involving the woman is the fact that her enemy is the cursed serpent. Yet her seed will fight and overpower him. God does not curse the woman in word group number three. We're going to keep stressing that. or anywhere in the speech addressed to her, see? If anything, he blesses her, for word groups number one and two speak of multiplied pregnancies. She has, however, by her own choice, elected to die. In the day you eat thereof, you will die. In the moment that they ate thereof, they became, 
well, walking dead people. They were mortal. They were spiritually separated from God, and their bodies were dying. God does not need to curse her or the man for her or him to have a death body. This was the choice each of the humans made when they disobeyed God's command. Death was the consequence God had already announced and never reiterates. Once he'd used the word death in 2.17, it is thereafter presumed, and he never uses the word again. Even in verse 19, he does not restate the death penalty when he describes what will become of the man's death body. You will go back to dust. Childbirth. What could have been multiplied blessing in a world of pure good? Think about that. Childbirth for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the attack, before the entry of death, she was going to have lots of children. And it wasn't a curse. It wasn't a bad thing. This childbirth was going to be great. But now that they're mortal, it's going to be different. The first word of word group number three is bad, quote unquote. And the two following words, speaking of bearing children, quote unquote, are good. It's a bone and word group two was inserted into the otherwise pure good of word groups one and two. And here now in word group number three, etsev is interjected into what would otherwise be pure good in word group number three. God has said that he would multiply not only her offspring in word group two, but also, well, in a sense, her etsev. The noun it's a bone comes from the word uh, uh, asav, the root verb, which means to labor, to toil, to pain, Without God's act of cursing the ground, which will result in Itzabon, the woman already has a death body, which will give birth in Etsev, an Asav-related word. The Itzabon will truly increase her Etsev. She will not have one, but two problems in the way of Asav. The death body she already has will bring forth children, Etsev, in hardship and pain. But also God's act of cursing the ground will cause Itzabon, her sorrowful toil. The intensified construction of Rabbah to become much, many great, multiplying I will multiply, is graphically portrayed that way then in the multiplied occurrences of Asav in word group two and in word group three, in the Itzabon and the Etzev. God's multiplying of her offspring resulted in good, even blessing, but why would he multiply her Asav? She already had a death body which would give birth to children. Why Itzabon in addition? The man and the woman both ate of the forbidden eights tree. But the woman herself not only ate, but influenced her husband to do so likewise. Though she was misled by the serpent and the man guarding the guardian was at fault in his duties, she nonetheless transgressed and influenced another person to transgress as well. Thus the curse of the ground to punish his knowing disobedience will influence her existence as she eats food from the same cursed ground. Elsewhere in the dissertation, we have the discussion that, that uh, there's, there's different kinds of sin in the Old Testament. There were people who murdered, and that could be called first-degree murder or intentional or willful murder, and they received a very harsh, the harshest of penalties, the death penalty. But there were people who uh, committed manslaughter or not willful murder, and, and they were given a chance to flee to the villages of refuge where they could, they could live and, and not be put to death for their crime because they were second-degree murderers. So God shows that later on. We have clear indication of, uh, in many places throughout the Bible, of first-degree or second-degree sin. And in the case of the man who, who ate and he wasn't deceived, and the woman who ate 
but Satan had to deceive her before she would even eat. She had defended God. She had uh, instructed the serpent, corrected the serpent, and yet the serpent continued to attack her and attack her and attack her and finally deceived her. And only then did she offer the fruit to the man. Only then did she take it herself and eat it. So we have instead now, we have a two degrees of sin. We have the, the man who sinned willfully. That's actually first degree rebellion. And then we have the woman who sinned um, through deception. Now that's second degree deception. So we have first degree sinner and a second degree sinner. The first degree rebels, the serpent and the man, each had curses pronounced because of them. A lot of people just kind of bounce along and they think, well, we've got three speeches, we've got three curses or more. A lot of people think that there were lots of curses. In fact, when we've polled people in three different continents, they've said, well, there's at least four curses. God cursed the, uh, God cursed the, the man and the woman and, and the serpent and the dirt. And uh, we have to gently correct them and say, no, he only cursed twice. He didn't curse either human being at all. It's a wonderful, loving God. He's just created them. The whole place is for them. And they, yeah, they've rebelled, but he, he's so gentle and so loving. And we have to understand that in Genesis 3.16. Well, there are two good words following etziv then in word group number two. And then they make it clear that uh, uh, he's going to bless her with these children. And when he's talking about giving birth to children, the, the blessed aspect of that is emphasized as much as possible. To bear, to bring forth, to beget, that verb occurs frequently in the Old Testament. Its next occurrence is, now I'm picking up again on page 266 from the dissertation. Its next occurrence is in Genesis 4.1, and it occurs again in 4.2. These two verses record the birth of Eve's first two sons. Since the woman has never had a death body, and she will soon experience childbirth with that death body, God instructs her what it will be like in a world of bad and good. He explains that giving birth will involve hardship effort. Well, we see here that in the diagram in the middle of the page that we have another chiasm. Uh, parts A, B, C, B prime, and A prime. And we have lightly outlined and darkly outlined elements. We have the good, the bad, the good, the bad, and the good. A, C, and A prime have to do with her offspring and our quote-unquote good. God will bless her with multiplied offspring. B and B prime are the bad elements intruding on her life in a world which is now good and bad. A and A prime are each two words. We're seeing the pattern, the details, the closely uh, linked description and construction of the, of the pattern of the chiasm. Page 267. The last four words of verse 16 concern the relationship between the one flesh partners, the woman and the man. So God's moving on to that part of her life. Thematically, the first four words of verse 16, words group one and two, concerned God's action upon her life. He doesn't act on her in the rest of the verse, but he did in the first two word groups. The next three words in word group number three describe what the experience of life with her death body would be like. The final four words in 16b describe what life will be like with her partner in a world and with people which are now good and evil. The four words are labeled A, B, C, and D, and we have a little diagram of that. There is a suggestion of symmetry in these four words. The first two words seem parallel to the last two words in a way reminiscent of uh, what we saw at the end of 315. 
In 315, the structure was parallel. There were two sets of three words. Each set there followed the same pattern, pronoun plus imperfect form of the verb shuf, plus a noun, a body part. The structure suggested what word meaning explained. There would be two opposing sides, one good, one bad. They would each attack the other, using the verb shuf. The body parts wounded, the head and heel, different and opposite, portrayed the result of the action of shuf in each case. The apparent parallel symmetry of 316b breaks down under more careful scrutiny. So people think we've got something. We've got, oh yeah, he talks to God about her, your desire is, and he talks to him about the man uh, to rule. Uh, no, there's not really par parallel symmetry here. Beyond a symmetry of two words plus two words, it is difficult to find any parallel. Word C begins the second pair of words with a pronoun, like the who of verse, that's the Hebrew word, who of verse 15. But there is no single pronoun corresponding to it. D contains a verb with the Hebrew letter that sounds like sh, but it's not a shu verb. And more surprisingly, there's no corresponding verb elsewhere at all in these four words. Could 16b be a chiastic structure resembling the chiasm of the last two lines of verse 19? Well, let's look into that. A begins with the preposition to, indicating direction, and a makaif, that little dash in the Hebrew there. Like the two L terms in the chiastic structure of verse 19, and D seems to correspond somewhat to C as it ends with a makaif and a preposition. However, the preposition beginning word A and the preposition ending word D do not correspond, though it almost seems like they should. So we can see why people would think that they should, uh, even reading in Hebrew, they think that, that these things should be parallel, but they don't correspond. Furthermore, the preposition of A is joined to a noun that has a pronominal suffix, whereas the preposition of D has a pronominal suffix and is joined to a verb. B looks like it might provide the lost shoe verb, but it's neither a verb nor is it reciprocated by a corresponding noun or verb composed of shuk. The last half of the chiasm in verse 19, let's look there. That might provide some help in understanding the pattern to the structure of 16b. It's made up of four words. Two of the words are prepositions with a makaif. One word is a pronoun alone. The fourth word is a verb, the only verb to be found in 19c. The structure of 19c may come closest to the unusual four words of 16b, but the structure of 19c is much more clearly ordered than that of 16b. Verse 19c bears a much closer resemblance to 15c than does 16b. And as I mentioned, we have a complete detailed pattern that's repeated both to the serpent and to the man. And that's, that's clear here at the end of verse 19. Verse 19c does not follow a pattern which repeats as perfectly as 15c, yet there are some significant parallels between the first two words and the last two words of verse 19c. The first and third words are each comprised of a preposition joined by a makaif to the same noun, and the second and fourth words are not parallel. One's a pronoun, one's a verb, yet both are second masculine singular. All right. The structure of the three words plus three words in 15c was parallel. The two words plus two words in 19c contained parallel elements. In both cases, the two sets of words were joined by and in the middle. In 316b, two occurrences of and in word a and in c seemed to force the four words into a parallel structure. No. 
This structure actually resists all other attempts to force the two lines into a symmetrical structure at all. One searches in vain to find that. Grammatically, in 316b, lines 1 and 2 are not related other than by the formal connection of the two ands. Line 1 is comprised of a preposition linked to a noun with a pronominal suffix and a noun with a pronominal suffix. Line 2 is made up of a pronoun and a verb linked to preposition with pronominal suffix. In English, we'd do it this way. We've got the first word in line one, and to man your. We've got the second word, desire your. And in line two, we've got the word, and he. And then we have, now, and this is just one Hebrew word with four English words used to translate it, will rule over you. The first line begins with a preposition and a noun, to ish, to the man. But the second line begins with a pronoun, he. Thus, man, he, opens each line at the end here of 316. Each line ends with the woman mentioned with a pronominal suffix. In the first line, there are two nouns, but no verb. In the other line, there's one verb, but no nouns. These just don't fit together. The sh sound is present in both lines, but it's not like the chiastic structure of 19b and c, which begin and end with the word shuv. Shuv. Nor is it like the parallel construction of 15, C and D, which had shuf as the second of three words in each part. Remember, form communicates content. What are we learning as we look at this form? Two lovers come from a good world. Created one from the other and related intimately each to the other, they are still yoked together in matrimony, but will experience the tension of good and evil in their lives together. The dominant position that the man will assume is hindered at by his prominent place in the syntax. Man, he, opens each line in Hebrew. The woman's presence in the syntax becomes almost a subliminal footnote, pronominal suffixes at the end of each line. The force, so the, her, her. The force symmetry of 15 or 16b, uh, the, the and, and, etc., highlights the unparalleled nature of these two lines. Two prepositions appear, they are found at the beginning and end. What are they? Well, two and over. Two, over? Well, they are unreciprocal. We don't get two, two. We don't get over, under. Two and over are incompatible. The two, two structure begin, begun in word A, but not carried through in line two, would be an appropriate description of mutual love. Two, two. The over, under structure found one-sidedly only in word D, would be an appropriate description of the relationship between God and humans, or an appropriate description of the relationship between humans and animals. It would be desirable in the case where good should triumph over evil, as in her seed is going to triumph over the serpent in 315. There God had established enmity between the deceiving serpent and the woman. But an over-under structure is not appropriate and would deform the relationship of the one-flesh partners. The husband was to cling to his wife just as Ruth clung to Naomi. That's from Genesis 2. Words C and D show instead an enemy and combative stance toward the woman. We see attack and domination shown in 315C. It's appropriate there, but we see it now in 16. The resemblance between line 2 of 316B and 315C suggests that the man will relate to her as in an adversary relationship assuming an enemy posture. 
The end of the speech to the serpent introduced the subject of the woman before she herself was addressed in the second speech. Likewise, the subject of the man is introduced already in the second speech before he is addressed in verse 17. In this way, there is a similarity between the first and second speeches. But a significant difference is that in 3.15, God establishes the serpent's enmity with the woman. The conflict there is something God says, I will put enmity between the two of you. He says, I will do it. In 3.16, he doesn't say, I will do anything. The woman instead is warned that the man will assume the stance of an enemy. Here, God neither speaks in the first person, to, as in 3.15, to establish such enmity, nor does he address the man to instruct him, you go, you assume this posture over her. He doesn't say that. He warns the woman of what her husband, now fallen, will be like in relation to her. In the past, she'd experienced the loyalty from her husband in a world of good only. She seems to be still anticipating and prepared for such a relationship with her husband. Thanks for listening to the Eden Podcast, brought to you by the members of the True 316 Foundation. Research into the Old and New Testaments by Dr. Joy Fleming and Reverend Bruce C.E. Fleming forms the base of all our work. Joy is a former Old Testament professor and is a practicing licensed psychologist. Bruce is the author of the Eden Book series, which starts with Book 1, The Book of Eden, Genesis 2-3. to We invite you to become a donor member of the True 316 Foundation as together we seek to true the verse of Genesis 316 and related passages. When you become a member, we'll send you an autographed copy of the Book of Eden. Sign up today by going to true316.com slash member. That's tru316.com slash member.